Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is just a quick check-in, letting you know that this is actually part two of an extended conversation that we had with Fanny Rushing. So if you missed it, you want to go back to part one and listen to her talk about her friend and mentor, Miss Ella Baker. In this episode, she's going to be talking about mostly two books, Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams and Discourse on Colonialism with a little bit about the Black Jacobins as well. Hope you enjoy. After, be sure to check out part three. And then the, the next book, um, I haven't read personally, but I, I, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. This is one of those books that I, I'm grateful to hear other folks sort of summarize and contextualize for us. Uh, and that's Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, right? Yes. What, what led you to this book and, and what's it about? Well, um, of course, you know, I suppose as most black people in, uh, well, in the Americas, you know, slavery is such an essential component of the narrative of one's life that you, you know, you can't help but read about, know about slavery. But, you know, really, what is it? How did it come about? Um, why? Why did these things happen? You were talking earlier about uh, your grandfather and talking with your grandfather. My mother used to say to me uh, when she was railing against my being in the movement that she just didn't understand what had happened, you know, that she didn't raise me that way. Well, in point of fact, she had because... Um, what I learned about life in, in this country, I learned sitting around the dinner table uh, with uh, friends and family. There wasn't anybody growing up that didn't have a story about being lynched, that didn't have a story about some other form of discrimination, segregation, marginalization, um, tracing back to slavery. And uh, it, it was just uh, so much a feature of African-American life. I just wanted to know more about it. And this book, of course, as someone else said, uh, stands the traditional narrative on its head. It turns it around, and once you... Um, once you read Capitalism and Slavery, it literally transforms the world for you and prior understandings of that world. And of course, it's very, very good because it definitely connects the dots. 
and connects dots that you do not uh, routinely associate with one another. Um, the traditional narrative is that um, uh, British abolitionists, uh, out of humanitarian reasons, fought to uh, end slavery and um, that their American counterparts, uh, anxious to help the benighted Negro <laughs> uh, to a higher existence, worked to, to end slavery. Well, Eric Williams takes all of that nonsense apart and, of course, is going to locate the struggle for not abolition, but emancipation within, uh, within the black communities of the Americas, makes it very, very clear that slavery, first of all, is uh, an institution that goes back to almost the beginning of time, that slavery in itself is not a definitive statement, right? What we are actually concerned about was the development in the Americas of this unique form of slavery, racial slavery, that had come to dominate our lives. Um, but he identifies uh, slavery, racial slavery, in the Americas as being an integral part of the so-called development of Western Europe. That rather than the narrative of uh, Columbus sailing the ocean blue, uh, trying to convert the heathens to the true uh, religion, uh, that in point of fact, there was nothing unique or exceptional exceptional about Europeans uh, that led to their spectacular ascendancy, but that the expansion of Europe, the conquest and colonization of the Americas, the confiscation of the native land, and the confiscation of black labor is what made British capitalism uh, develop and spread, and when it reached a certain point that it no longer needed slavery as an institution, it destroyed it. Well, this is the so-called Williams thesis. Um, even though I was intrigued when I first read it, the subsequent years in which white scholar after white scholar uh, made a cottage industry of trying to debunk the Williams thesis. I knew if that many folks were trying to disprove it, you know, there really had to be something to it. And so you go back and you read this over and over again, and each time you read it, um, you, your understanding deepens, and um, you realize that far from uh, Native people and Africans and their descendants 
being a drag on the development of Europe, that this is really what provided the raw material for the development uh, of Europe. Um, so, it is not only uh, eye-opening in um, debunking the traditional narrative. Then, um, in later years, as a scholar, you can go back and look at this and see how rooted it is uh, in real scholarship. I mean, this is no conspiracy theory uh, or something that somebody is, you know, spinning in a vacuum. He begins, really, by looking at Adam Smith himself, the father of capitalist economic theory. And uh, Eric Williams, like any scholar who is attempting to critique someone else's work, really understands Smith, you know, goes back uh, to the original uh, and looks at what Smith had to say. And Smith was very clear. Uh, if you read The Wealth of Nations, he says, the rise of Europe is predicated on the conquest and colonization of the Americas. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, he says it's not because of the gold and silver uh, that was found in the Americas, because after all, uh, actually, the abundance of something, according to capitalist economic theory, uh, devalues it. Right. But he said, what did it do? Uh, the reason that Britain, this tiny little island, was able to supersede Spain, for example, uh, that began the conquest was the way in which the confiscation of the native land and African labor was able to create new markets uh, and to uh, spur English development. For example, we do not, we do not think about this normally, but when we think about Britain and the development of manufacturing, industrialization, why were they doing this? Why did shipping develop? Well, shipping developed in order to outfit ships to go to the west coast of Africa to bring slaves to the Americas and merchandise uh, back to England, the triangular trade, as it's called. And he looks at British shipping prior to the development of the triangular trade, and it didn't exist. Right? It comes about specifically as a result of the Atlantic trade. The insurance industry. Why? <laughs> if you insure these uh, slaves, right, 
doesn't matter how many of them you lose because you're still going to get your you're going to get your money. And so you see the insurance agency, uh, the insurance industry growing out of the Atlantic trade. And what do you need in order to hold those slaves in check on board ship? Well, you need manacles, you need locks, you need chains, okay? What does that do? It stimulates the iron industry in England. You see the growth of towns in England in reading capitalism and slavery uh, as a direct result of the Atlantic trade. You uh, read in capitalism and slavery, um, and I'll, I'll just read this. Um, in this section on uh, the triangular trade. According to Adam Smith, the discovery of America and the Cape route to India are the two greatest and most important events recorded in the history of mankind. This is what Smith said. This isn't, you know, some notion of Williams. This is exactly what Smith said and then Williams traces it step by step to see whether or not empirically this is verifiable, and it is. Uh, the importance of the discovery of America lay not in the precious metals it provided, but the new and inexhaustible market it afforded for European commodities. One of its principal effects was to raise the mercantile system to a degree of splendor and glory, which it could never have otherwise attained. I mean, we don't think about it in that way traditionally, but it is black labor that not only was responsible for the rise of Europe, but it is responsible for the rise of the 13 colonies, able to compete with Britain to such a degree that some in Britain, such as Adams, Adam Smith said, listen, let those 13 colonies go. They are now no longer good colonies. They compete with us. Let them go. Okay. It is an entirely new way of looking at the world and the role of Africans and their descendants in, in that world. Okay. And if you go through it, uh, you can look at all of the various slave uh, moments in uh, slavery, uh, and it tracks out not only at the theoretical level, but uh, in uh, actual empirical um, verification. He says, uh, this is Eric Williams, the development of the triangular trade and shipping and shipbuilding led to the growth of the great seaport towns, Bristol, Liverpool, and Glasgow, occupied as seaports and trading centers the position in the age of trade that Manchester, Birmingham, and Sheffield occupied uh, later in the age of industry. In other words, all of these cities 
in England that we identified with this tremendous expansion, sure, but why? It's as a result of the Atlantic trade. It was the slave and sugar trade which made Bristol the second city of England for the first three quarters of the 18th century. There is not, wrote a local analyst, a brick in the city, but was cemented with the blood of a slave. Okay? So, that's why capitalism and slavery is so important because it transforms your vision. It not only makes you connect the dots, it makes you understand the importance of investigating root causes. In other words, it's not enough to satisfy yourself with nonsense such as, well, Europeans didn't like the way Africans looked, and so they went to Africa and forced them into slavery. And, you know, that's what you grow up with. And so then you don't get to the real root cause of Atlantic slavery, which, as the British foreign minister says in Eric Williams' documents, we cannot end the Atlantic trade. It is the source of our wealth. It is the source of our wealth. It's a transformative vision of the world. It's a transformative vision of the world. And I, I have questions around how you saw that these ideas and the, this connection playing out um, on the ground in terms of how, how did it affect the strategy, right, or the conversations. But I, I'm curious, I think you, that it might connect to the next book that you're talking about as well. So I don't know if it makes sense to answer that first for this or if you want to talk about um, uh, discourse on... Uh, discourse on colonialism. Well, let me talk about to the discourse on colonialism first because I think it is clearer to see. Okay, yeah. Um, they are both books on theory. Uh, they are both books that you have to empirically verify. Uh, the discourse on colonialism... Uh, of course, uh, Anne Césaire writes this in 1954, I believe it is. And often I say to students today, uh, look, uh, does this book have any relevance for today? Because after all, it's written over 50 years ago. Does it still have something to say? Well, if you look around the world and you understand what Césaire is saying... Uh, you realize its relevance. You realize it's a seminal work, not only because of the theory, but because, uh, I mean, it is Cicero, uh who is the teacher of Fanon. Okay. Oh. Um, oh. The, Can you tell us who Fanon is? Oh, Franz Fanon. Franz Fanon, yeah. uh, Franz Fanon uh, his most famous work, of course, is The Wretched of the Earth. Uh, and uh, Franz Fanon, just as with Cicero, uh, they were both born in the French colony of Martinique, uh, both forced uh, to go to France to study, because in the colony there was no higher education, there was no reason for it. Uh, 
in the colonies, as Cicero will uh, later say. Um, but when uh, Fanon finished school, he was a psychiatrist, but of course he couldn't get a job in France, so they sent him to Algeria. Uh, at the time of the Algerian uh, resistance movement was beginning. But what uh, Fanon found was that many of the patients that he saw in the psychiatric hospital, that their illnesses were directly related to their experience with colonialism. What he had taken from Césaire is the way in which colonialism deforms both the colonizer and the colonized, deforms the mind. And so this is where Fanon uh, is going to develop his theory of the colonization of the mind. So Césaire is important not only for producing a seminal theory of his own, but inspiring another generation of uh, post-colonial writers. Uh, Edward Said, very much indebted to uh, Césaire for how we look at the colonial world. So, this tiny little book, uh, which you can read in a night, um, the only thing students like about it at first is that they can read it in the night. But when you go back and read it and really uh, understand what Césaire is saying, it becomes something that you can apply around the world. Okay, So when you read the discourse on colonialism, you look at apartheid in South Africa in a very different way. Once you understand the nature of colonialism, you look at Northern Ireland, and you understand Northern Ireland uh, not as a religious conflict, but as a conflict between colonizer and colonized. Certainly, transformed my understanding of, say, the Middle East. So it's not a question of a struggle between Muslims and Jews, who, after all, have lived in, uh, in the Middle East for thousands and thousands of years. Why was this not a problem before 1948? Well, if you go back to the discourse on colonialism, and you analyze this as a colonial occupation, you come out with very different answers. So when you ask how does it affect organizing, it affects you because you are understanding what the root causes are. Therefore, uh, you're not going to spend a lot of time uh, insisting on interreligious dialogue, you know, which is fine, mm -hmm. but is not going to resolve the problem. So, um, when you look at South Africa, you have to understand what's really going on here. Right? What was 1948 about in South Africa? 
clearly it was the British saying, well, listen, you people want to run the government, that's fine. Because we're going to keep control of De Beers, uh, the, diamond, uh, the diamond mines. We are going to keep control over the corporate structure. You can do whatever you want to in this political story. You want to call it apartheid, fine. Okay. Hmm. One of the problems was that it was not sufficient simply to end apartheid. It was an advance. It was right. an advance. But the reality is, 20 years later, the same people still own De Beers. Right. And the same people are continuing to maintain pretty much the status quo. Right. You may allow, you know, a few folk up into uh, the upper levels of the ship, but most people are still chained down below. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, the discourse, capitalism and slavery, these are books that force us to look at root causes, force us to uh, examine our organizing in terms of what is it that we're trying to change, what do you need to change in order to get uh, a fundamental difference in the way people live. And so, ultimately, uh, around uh, South Africa, it, you know, it led us into movements for divestiture, beginning to look at the connections of U.S. corporations in, in Southern Africa, and to try and put pressure there, because we came to understand that's how we're going to make fundamental change. Well, rather than make that fundamental change, hey, maybe what you better do is release Mandela, okay? Because if we continue this, ultimately, people are going to come to what the real issues are, and we will not be able to control the change. Mm -hmm. okay? So listen, everybody's glad that Mandela's out of prison. But we also know that that is not sufficient in order to change the lives of the vast majority of people in South Africa today who are not living much different than before Mandela was, was president. Um, in this country, similarly, yeah, uh, I had a big party when Barack Obama was uh, elected. Am I glad that he was elected? Absolutely. Was it possible for him to make any fundamental change in the way uh, most people live their lives? No, not so much. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> as I say, the struggle continues though, to continue. You know? In my mind, where's my mind? Um, so I last year was able to take a group of, of middle school students to Haiti for a few days, for about, uh, about 11 days. And, um, How wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I still am learning from, <laughs> from that trip. And I, I think a lot about um, this word abolition and it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of insistence throughout the ages and, it's, it's, and how people 
what what the word means during different time periods. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I always now connect it back to Haiti, where you see the abolition of slavery, but not an end of mm-hmm. oppression by mm-hmm. any means. Mm-hmm. Right? But, uh, and so I guess what I'm thinking about is, is like, is this about is it is the root cause something about our relationships to like what is the thing is it about who owns the means of production is it or or is it is is that is that what Haiti didn't accomplish in its abolition of slavery but well it simply transferred the uh, ownership of mm-hmm. production to a new ruling elite um, I'm I'm sorry that I, I left the black Jacobins. Oh yeah, um, we can bring that in now. Uh, at, at, at work. I had so many copies of it, but they have disappeared. <laughs> uh, but um, it, perhaps um, the, the Black Jacobins is important too because it helps us to uh, to re-situate the Haitian Revolution, instead of it being something that is either completely forgotten or seeing it as a periphery of the French Revolution, um, if you really, uh, and and Gerald Horne's confronting the Black Jacobins is, uh, is, is a, an important work in this, in, in this regard, is that if you reverse this and look at what Eric Williams has to say and you understand that Saint-Domingue, the French colony that became Haiti, uh, produced more sugar and more wealth than had ever been generated in the whole history of France. Um, It was this wealth that allowed for the development of a bourgeoisie that was blocked by the monarchist and the royalist forces that led to the French Revolution. So rather than the Haitian Revolution being a periphery of the French Revolution, if you look at Eric Williams, you see the ways in which the Haitian, uh, the production of sugar in Haiti was really the generative force behind the French Revolution. Right. Okay. There would not have been uh, this new bourgeoisie had it not been for the merchants who were, for the first time, making these enormous profits. They didn't need. They didn't need land in France. So the royalists, the monarchists, could have that because what they had was this new commodity, this new money if you will, and they were so, as always is the case uh, with bourgeois democracy, it falters on the shoals of slavery. In other words, the bourgeoisie in France was not willing to extend uh, the privileges that it had won and share power with slaves, okay? And so, you know, they decided to abandon the colony, right? And since it was no longer going to be producing wealth for France, 
they sold Louisiana to the United States. I mean, the Haitian Revolution is pivotal in that. That's part of U.S. expansion. If it had not been for the Haitian Revolution and France's determination not to, I mean, well, of course, they certainly tried to hold on to it, but couldn't, they would never have agreed to the sale of all this land in what has now become the United States. So, again, the Haitian Revolution isn't something that's peripheral, but yet how much do we talk about the Haitian Revolution? Not at all. And when we do, it is very derisive. I mean, it's, um, you know, this kind of, um, as they call it in this country, voodoo, um, a voodoo revolution. Well, it may have been uh, a revolution that was centered in this Afro-Caribbean religion, but it produced the first and only rebellion in the world where slaves were able to destroy the institution of slavery. Right, right. All right. Now, this wasn't, uh, you know, gentle white fathers sprinkling their hands over anybody. These were slaves who took up arms and destroyed the power of French control. And not only, not only released but they destroyed the institution of slavery. The only other great slave rebellion uh, was that of Spartacus in Rome. But Spartacus wasn't interested in destroying slavery as an institution. He was only interested in freeing himself and his compatriots. But in Haiti, what you have is the overthrow of slavery by slaves and the establishment of an independent country, mm -hmm. right, which has ramifications down to today. Right. All right. So Eric Williams teaches us in Capitalism and Slavery, you know, don't look at it from the outside in, look at it from the inside out and you get an entirely different history, an entirely different sense of empowerment. Mm -hmm. right? You do not get abolition at the hands of generous white fathers. Emancipation, which is different from abolition, emancipation is always in the hands of the oppressed. Because only you can emancipate yourself. Somebody else can pass a law, but only you can emancipate yourself. So capitalism and slavery, the discourse on colonialism, these are works that teach us, look, if you're going to really understand this, you have to be able to understand this from the inside out. to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. 
special shout out to the Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.